Good morning, and welcome to session two. Um, in this session, we're going to be talking about the imperatives of Philippians, the practice of battling fear and anxiety. So I hope that your hearts were full last night as you reflected on some of the glorious truths that we looked at, some truths about who we are in Christ. Uh, these are rich, um, foundational truths that we need to return to again and again, especially as we think about doing battle with our fear and anxiety. Now, as we did last night, I want to take just a moment to reflect on the gospel and remind us of gospel truth. We do need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. I'm going to read again from Philippians 3, verses 8 to 11, a bit of Paul's personal testimony. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So in this section of Philippians 3, we see some of the major themes in Philippians, and it gives us more information on how we can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. We must count everything else as rubbish, as loss. And I've been thinking about that concept. That means even the things that we are tempted to be worried about, things that are frightening to us, we need to think of them as, as loss, as rubbish in comparison to the far surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. And so as we grow in knowing and loving and esteeming and worshiping and valuing knowing Christ, everything else just diminishes, right? It's, it's a proportionality. We lift up Christ in our minds and hearts. And all these other things that tempt us to be worried and fearful just take a proper lower place in our values and in our thoughts. So let's be reminded again of the far surpassing value of knowing Christ and let that just kind of inform our fearful tendencies. Now in this session, we're going to be looking at some imperatives or commands that we find in the book of Philippians. And we're going to focus on a very familiar passage in Philippians, but think about it with particular application to our temptation to be fearful and to be anxious. So please turn and read with me Philippians 4. We will read Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. <clears throat> verses 4 through 9. Beginning at Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers or sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, there's so much in this text that applies to our battle with fear, but first, Notice one detail there at the end. Paul says to practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Again, it just shows the Lord's compassion for us. It takes effort repeated over time and throughout our lives to learn to arrest our thoughts and to discern our feelings, to really know what's going on in our hearts and to bring all of that into alignment with the truth of God's word. It takes practice, doesn't it? Now, when I think of practice, I think of the piano. I I have four older sisters, and music was very important to my parents. My dad was a church organist for 60 years, and so my parents wanted all five of us to learn to play the piano. That's a lot of practice. Marin will understand. And I just remember, I think that caused more conflict between us and our mother than anything else was just the need to practice, and we didn't want to practice. But I think it's kind of ironic because she was encouraging us to practice, knowing what that practice was going to sound like. (laughs) Not always the best, the most musical. And I just think of my parents' patience as they encouraged us strongly to practice knowing that that's what it would take to become a pianist. And that's just like the Lord. He's encouraging us to practice these things, to get better at them. So let's look at these these commands, these imperatives. And when you hear the word command, hear that as a good thing. It's a good thing from our loving Heavenly Father who knows better than we do what we need. And so these commands, these imperatives are for our good, for our practice to learn to battle our fear um, in a more Christ-honoring way. All right, we're going to look at, I think there's seven imperatives from this passage. The first one is rejoice in the Lord, as we see in verse four. We want to cultivate rejoicing affections. Now, affections are different than emotions. Emotions ebb and flow with the circumstances, don't they? We all know that. You know what it is to wake up in the morning and the sun is shining, it's a beautiful day, and we are happy. Or you wake up in the morning and it's pouring down rain and we are sad. Whatever it is, whatever circumstances are around us, they're always changing. Our emotions are always changing. But our affections are deeper and richer and more abiding. So we want to cultivate rejoicing affections by true thinking about the Lord and about all that he has provided for us in Christ. So this is not self-talk or positive thinking 
or not um, kind of a Christian scientist denial of what's going on. Rather, it is thinking of God and his character, his promises, his presence, his grace, his strength, thinking of all that God is, all that God has given us in Christ, that forms the basis for our rejoicing. We have to be so careful not to live by our emotions. I love this quote from Ed Welch. He says, who is in charge? God and what he says, or me and how I feel? Who is in charge? God and what he says, or me and how I feel? Sometimes our feelings loom so large and feel so strong, but they, not, they are not always necessarily in line with truth, with God's truth. So I, I love this example that uh, Tim Keller had in one of his devotional books that is really helpful as we think about emotions versus truth. He write, writes this, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> We must live then on the basis of what God has revealed, not what we feel. Pilots who fly into clouds must follow their, their instruments, even when those contradict their clear sense perceptions of which way is up. So fly by the instruments, not by what, what they're sensing, or they will inevitably die. When we go through clouds of prosperity or adversity, we must not go on feelings of self-sufficiency, things are going well, I'm fine, I don't need the Lord, or despair, we're suffering, we are despairing. We don't need to give in to those feelings, but rather we trust a gracious and wise God. Just a helpful picture, isn't it? No matter what we are sensing or feeling, we must arrest our thoughts and, and inform them with the truth of who God is for us, what truth is that we read in God's word. Now, in, in verse four, we read that we should rejoice in the Lord always. So why should we rejoice in the Lord always? Because the Lord is always the same. He never changes, he never falters, he never fails. He always provides what his children need as they look to him. Everything else changes. Our circumstances, people, our feelings as we've been talking about. But God does not change. So it's always appropriate to rejoice in him. Many years ago, I went to college at Biola University out in California, and I took a theology proper class, a doctrine of God, Christ, and Holy Spirit. It was a wonderful class, my favorite college class. And in it, I learned about different attributes of God, and I decided my favorite attribute is God's unchangeableness or immutability. I love that, maybe because I'm so changeable and circumstances are so changeable, but I love that God doesn't change. So then a few years later after Bruce and I got married, we went down to Fuller for him to get his PhD and he was thinking about what to write his dissertation on. And I said, what about God's immutability? And he said, no, oh, no, I don't think so. <laughs> Thankfully, a friend of ours was there too and he said, no, I, I think that's a good idea. And he ended up writing it and it became just, yeah, it was kind of fun. I'm thankful for that friend. <laughs> 
But because he wrote on God's immutability, it was something that we talked about a lot, he learned about a lot, um, and, and it's just been kind of a foundation for our family life through all these years that God doesn't change. So we can rejoice in the Lord always, and we are to cultivate that kind of affection for him. One of the elders at our church uh, Jeremy Pierre is a biblical counseling professor at Southern, and he recently wrote a book on the dynamic heart that I just read a couple of weeks ago, and it was so helpful that I wanted to read you this little bit from it. God's stable character, his immutability, is foundational to how people relate to him. God's immutability means that people enjoy relational stability with him. Isn't that glorious? Relational stability with God. In fact, God's unchanging stability undergirds the very concept of relationship. Even when creation is thrown into tumult, including personal circumstances, God remains confidently untouched and in charge. God's faithfulness does not change according to human faithlessness. Aren't we so grateful for that? We may confidently approach God in faith, knowing he will not be in a foul, ungenerous mood. God doesn't change. Let us rejoice always in our unchanging God. Number two, second imperative, be reasonable. Be reasonable, as we read in verse five. Recognize how much of our fear is not reasonable. This is where we really need to take a look at our fears and examine them. Think clearly, pray for discernment from the Lord. So are you known for being reasonable? reasonable, Or are you known for being kind of demanding or high maintenance? How do you feel when hard things come your way? Are you surprised thinking, this shouldn't happen to me? Or are you humble, accepting with grace what God brings or what he withholds? Are you so aware of God's forbearance for you in Christ that you are quick to be forbearing and patient and kind to others? Do you assess your source of fear with reasonableness? Do you tend to rush in your mind to the worst possible scenario like I am tempted to do? Or perhaps you're like Pollyanna and kind of ignoring reality. The mark of being reasonable is that you interpret whatever you face in light of the goodness and the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. What we want to develop is a reasonableness formed by faith. We want to look at the circumstances of our life, everything that we are facing, through the lens of the character of God. We want our minds to be so filled with who God is, what his ways are, what his attributes are, what his promises are. That needs to be foremost in our mind and in our heart, that we look through that lens to everything else. We want to be careful not to judge the character of God by our circumstances, so that when something really hard comes along, We want to guard against thinking or saying or acting like, 
well, God doesn't know what he's doing, or God doesn't love me, God must not care, or God just seems absent. We want to be so careful not to judge God's character by our circumstances, but to judge our circumstances by the character of God. Now, as we think about this, developing a reasonableness formed by faith, a reasonableness based on the truth of God's word, it makes me think it's important to really know ourselves and know what we can handle hearing and reading and listening to. For some of us, if we listen to very much oh, news, current event type of things, it might be difficult to maintain a reasonableness formed by faith, right? It might tempt us too much to be fearful. So think about yourself and know what you can and should do to maintain reasonable thinking. Be careful about how much you take in of, of current events or news or reading blogs that, that get you upset or maybe cause you to be afraid. Just be careful about how much of that you take in compared to how much you take in of God's word and good books that strengthen your soul, fortify you, help you grow in developing a reasonableness based on faith. We need to know ourselves. We need to guard ourselves. I love this wisdom from Lydia Brownback that is on your handout. Guarding what we watch, read, and hear isn't legalism. It's just sanctified common sense. Isn't that helpful? Sanctified common sense. So know what is common sense for you for maintaining a reasonable spirit. Number three, do not be anxious about anything. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. Here we get to the heart of the matter, don't we? Don't be anxious. God is with you. Don't be anxious. God is with you. This is one of the many times that God tells us, commands us to not be anxious, to not give in to fear. And the basis for it is that the Lord is at hand. God means for that to be a great comfort to us that we will remember and reflect and then live out the fact that God is with us. Let me read a couple of other texts yeah, that express this truth. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Again, so simple, so clear, so easy to remember. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a vivid image that is, that God is upholding us with his right hand. He will hold us fast as we love to sing. In Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, we see a similar truth expressed. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What could man do to me? It would be a worthwhile study to locate all the references to the presence of the Lord or the ways in which he expresses he is with us in the Bible and to examine what that means for us. How precious this truth is 
how strengthening this truth is. Do you think about this often? The Lord is with me. He's upholding me by his righteous right hand. This command is an enormous blessing and help to us as we fight our fears. Number four, pray about everything. I lost my word. There it is. Pray about everything. When something arises that tempts you to worry, what do you do? Cry? Panic? Call a friend? Eat a quart of ice cream? <laughs> what do you do? Pray? Pray? Why do we not quickly turn to the one, the only one who is able to help us? We're commanded to pray. It's just assumed throughout scripture that Christians are prayers. And prayerlessness, not praying, indicates a heart attitude of independence. If I'm not praying about something, I assume that I don't need God's help. I'm just fine on my own. That's what that conveys. I'm fine, taking care of things. I don't need the Lord. But the truth is, I'm not fine, and you're not fine. We are completely dependent upon the Lord for life, for breath, for wisdom, for direction, for strength, for guidance, for conviction, for encouragement, for empowerment. We are 100% dependent upon the Lord. You'll see that quote on your handout from Spurgeon. Make good use of your God. Gain full advantage by pleading with him. Tell him your troubles. Search his promises and then petition him with holy boldness. For this is the surest and the fastest way to find relief. The surest and the fastest way to find relief. So when those hard things arise, the temptations creep in upon us or just pour out upon us, let us be quick to find our relief by going to the Lord. Let us be women who pray much more and worry much less. Isn't that true? It's just an inverse proportion. Pray more, worry less. Number five, give thanks. Give thanks. I've been thinking about this. Gratitude is the heart language, the native tongue, if you will, for Christians, or it ought to be, right? The Lord has shown so much mercy, so much grace to us, and we should just live in a spirit of gratitude, a spirit of thanksgiving. But it's hard. We live in a culture that is not marked by thankfulness, a culture that is marked by a sense of entitlement. And that influences us more than we realize. I want to uh, focus on thanksgiving and gratitude by turning to Psalm 50. We're going to read part of Psalm 50, 5 0. We're going to read verses 7 to 15 and think about how this instructs us regarding gratitude and then how that helps us fight against our fears. Psalm 50, verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house 
or goats from your folds? For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. This is just a fascinating passage where God is God has Israel on trial, and he is the chief witness of the prosecuted, prosecuting attorney and the judge. And Israel is in trouble. Now, we know from reading the Old Testament that the people of Israel were sometimes more obedient to the Lord, sometimes far less obedient to the Lord. And when we read this psalm, it seems like, well, they're doing something right. We read, your burnt offerings are continually before me. That's what they're supposed to do, right? So, yeah, they're doing something they're supposed to do. But they're not. God is judging them for it. Why? Apparently, the way they're offering these continual burnt offerings comes from a heart that is not worshiping the Lord and thanking him. It is a heart that is seeking to offer to God something that he lacks, Right? He says, do I, drink, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? So they're trying to give to God something that he needs. And it makes sense that Israel is thinking this way because that's the way the pagan communities around them worshipped their false gods, right? They're, they're offering up to their gods something that those gods lack. They're trying to appease their gods in a, in a time of suffering. So that, that way of thinking about God has seeped into their minds and their hearts. And the Lord is judging them for this. He is clarifying that he does not need anything. All things are already his. He is self-sufficient. He owns the world and all things in it. Why would the creator and the ruler of all things look to his creatures for anything? I love verse 12, if, and that's a big if, if I were hungry, I would not tell you the world and all its fullness are mine. So if their hearts are in the wrong place, what's the right place? We read in verse 14, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, thanksgiving. So if we're thinking clearly about who God is, all that he has, how he provides all that we need, our hearts toward him should be constantly full of thanksgiving. He's the giver, we're the receivers. It's a one-way street. We owe to him constant thanksgiving and praise, praise for every good thing that we receive. This is one of the things that we learn from God's self-sufficiency. Psalm 50 verse 23 says, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice, glorifies me, glorifies me. That's how we can glorify God, by looking to him to provide all that we need and then thanking him as we see him provide all that we need. 
A number of years ago, I began a habit that I have found really helpful for my soul in cultivating gratitude. When I go to sleep at night, or to bed at night, not always to sleep, um, I, most nights, I stop and think back through the day and pick out three things for which to thank the Lord. And you know, on the hardest day of all, you can find three things. I mean, you're still alive. He has provided breath throughout the day, right? And it's just helpful to kind of frame my day, look back, determined to find things for which to be grateful. And, and it has been a benefit to me. So I was kind of surprised a few years ago. I came across uh, an article in a secular magazine that talked about something very similar, where there were very depressed people, people who couldn't get out of bed in the morning, and the only treatment that they were assigned was to write down things for which they were grateful. And they saw an improvement in their, in their spirits, in their attitudes. But my question when I read that was, who are they thanking? Who are they thanking? You know, our culture talks about being thankful, but they're not talking about being thankful to God. We are blessed to know the one who gives all things. We can be thankful to God, the one who gives all things. Nancy DeMoss says, it may feel a bit insincere to give thanks under certain circumstances, perhaps even manipulative, but we counsel and train our hearts by such steps of obedience. I love that. We can counsel and train our, thart, our, our hearts. Remember, practice, we're practicing, taking our thoughts captive, Try counseling our hearts to grow in gratitude. So let's be women who are marked by a spirit of gratitude. As we are more grateful to the Lord for, for all things, including the hard things, it will help us not to give in to fear. Number six, pursue peace, as we read in Philippians 4, 7. Pursue peace. True peace is from God, and it guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4 is probably a favorite verse of many of ours, for many of us. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. As we fix our minds on the Lord, he keeps us in perfect peace. It takes effort. It takes practice. It takes diligence to keep our thoughts fixed on him. John Calvin wrote the following. It is impossible for Christ to be king without also keeping his people in calm and blessed peace. If Christ is king, and he is, he keeps his people in calm and blessed peace and enriching them with every blessing. But since they are exposed to innumerable attacks every day and are tossed and perplexed by fears and anxieties, they ought to cultivate that peace of Christ so that they might retain their composure amid the destruction of the whole world. 
I find that last phrase to be very prescient of Calvin. I mean, it just, as you look around the world, so many things are happening that are so enormous, so weighty, so grievous, so tragic, and tempting us to fear and anxiety. But God is king, and he reigns and rules. And as we fix our minds on him, we can pursue peace. We can cultivate peace. And this is something that should impact our relationships with each other as well. If there's something that is troubling you, some kind of relational distance between you and someone else, are you quick to address that? Are you quick to go to that person and pursue peace? As we read in Romans, as much as it is up to you, be at peace with all men, right? Don't let things build up in your personal relationships. Don't let a distance lengthen and strengthen and affect your relationships. Pursue peace with the Lord, cultivate peace, and then let that impact your relationships with each other. Be quick to pursue peace as much as it is up to you. And then number seven. Number seven, renew your mind with right thinking. With right thinking, as we read in Philippians 4, verse 8. Now, we talked about right thinking last year. So if you were here last year, you are going to hear some echoes of what we said. But I looked up, I looked this up recently, and I found this very interesting. The human brain is the most complex mechanism in the world the most influential organ in your body. The average weight is three pounds. Your brain weighs three pounds. It contains 12 billion cells, 120 trillion brain connections, and most people use only 10% of the capabilities of our brains during our lifetime. And we die with at least 10 billion brain cells still unused. Isn't that sad? We don't, we don't use our brains very well. But here, we want to think about using our brains well for right thinking. That we don't have complete control over the thoughts that come into our mind, but God knows us very well. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he tells us to think on these things. He gives us a list and he says, think on these things. So God knows that we do have a measure of control, a, ma a matter of choice about what we think about. Think of that repeated refrain that we see in Psalms 42 and 43, this instruction to ourselves. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. There is this sense in which we need to talk to ourselves, tell ourselves what to think about. Such a helpful example of instructing our minds and our souls to focus on truth. I don't remember if I told this, so if I did, with my older sisters, we have this thing where if you're telling a story again, you hold up two fingers, but you could do that if you want. But um, <clears throat> After the birth of our second daughter, Rachel, I had a really severe postpartum depression. It was just a very difficult year, really black and hard, full of uh, panic attacks, and it was, it was just so hard. And in God's kindness, we had just moved from Minnesota back to my hometown of Portland, Oregon, 
and we started going to the church that I grew up in. The pastor at that time honestly reminds me quite a bit of Pastor Rick, and he was just this gifted-by-God counselor. And I started going to him every couple of weeks, and he would type up a prescription for prescription for Jody Weyer. And what it was was specific texts to read and meditate on, you know, like three or four to focus on for the next couple of weeks. And the Lord used that in a powerful way. I, I clung to reading my Bible in a way that I hadn't before. Bethany was three years old at the time, and she said to her grandmother, Mommy needs to read her Bible. That's where she gets her strength. And I thought, that's a good thing for a three-year-old to learn. And it was so true. I realized then, and I still realize, how desperately I need to be in God's Word. Another thing that the Lord used in my life during that year was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones' book on spiritual depression. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to. And that was the first place where I learned this concept of talking to yourself rather than listening to yourself, right? If we're just listening to ourselves and letting our thoughts go willy-nilly wherever they will, they might not end up in a good place. They tend to kind of spiral downward, right? So we must take ourselves, take a hold of ourselves firmly and talk to ourselves. Tell ourselves what to think about, how to think about these things. And when we are fearful, when we're suffering, when we feel that anxiety just taking over, we need to think more than we feel. We need to just arrest our thoughts and remind ourselves of what we need to think. So here in Philippians 4, God, speaking through the Apostle Paul, gives us this helpful list that we will talk through quickly. The first, and I think the most important when we're thinking about fear and anxiety, is that we are to think things that are true. We are to think things that are true. Ed Welch describes anxiety as a voice that tells us lies about ourselves, our God, our world, and our future. Anxiety is a voice that tells us lies about ourselves, our God, our world, and our future. Isn't that a great description? It's so true. Our anxiety just lies to us, and we need to combat that with truth. So how do we know what is true? We listen to the word of God. The word of God is true. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is reliable. It is sufficient. We cannot say that about anything else, any other source of information. The Bible is uniquely true, and it must be the source for our thinking. But we have three enemies that hinder our thinking about truth. The world distracts us and entices us with false values and false influences. Our flesh wages war against our souls and tempts us to live in prideful self-reliance. And Satan is the great deceiver, working as hard as he can to keep us from thinking truth. So I made a list of a few lies that I think are common for us women things that we struggle with, things that we are tempted to believe. 
Here's one. God doesn't love me. If he did, I wouldn't be suffering like this. I wouldn't be having to walk through this extreme difficulty. God must not love me. I think it's easy for us to feel that way, to be tempted to feel that way. The truth is, God does love you. And we know this because he sent his son to die for you. That is true love. We have to arrest those thoughts and replace them with truth. Here's another lie. No one else struggles like I do. No one else is as worried about this as I am. So I dare not be open about my fears. That's a lie. We need each other. We'll be talking more about that in the next session. God is not really good. God is not really good. I can't trust him. When things are very difficult, we are tempted to feel that way. But it is not true. Uh, God can't forgive what I've done. I've, I have done something far too awful. God can't forgive it. That is a lie. His grace is greater. I am all alone. <laughs> I'm all alone. No one's helping me. No one's going to take care of me. I am all alone. Again, God tells us, do not be afraid because he is with us. We have to choose to believe that whether we feel it or not. So these are just a few lies of many, we could go on and on, that we need to contrast and combat with the truth of God's word. Let us be women who are filling our minds with God's truth in whatever way we can. Read it, study it, memorize it, meditate, be involved in, in programs where you're learning how to study it more and more. Keep scripture verses always before you. During, during that year of depression, I had verses on cards all around the house. I knew I needed that input, that truth. That is how we can combat our fears. And then the rest of the list will go through quickly. Honorable, think on things that are honorable, that are noble and reverent and respectable. Think about things that are just, right and righteous. Think about things that are pure, innocent, chaste, clean, untainted. Again, we need to guard our eyes and our ears and our minds and our hearts. Input matters so much, doesn't it? What we put into our minds just affects us, takes root. Think on things that are lovely, that are pleasing and amiable. There is so much in our culture today that is unlovely. Let's not take in much of that. Think on things that are commendable, positive, and constructive. Things that are excellent, morally virtuous, and things that are worthy of praise. Things that ought to be praised, admired, approved. I love that, that hymn, worthy of worship. God is worthy of worship, worthy of praise. Now think about this list, things that are true, honorable, right, or sorry, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. What do those qualities have in common with fear and worry and anxiety? <laughs> Nothing, right? They're kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. Either we're thinking on these things 
or we're thinking on these things. So we need to ask ourselves regularly, what am I feeding my mind? What am I putting in? What am I reading? What am I listening to? What am I focusing on? And how is that affecting my fears and my anxieties? What thoughts do I let take root and then bear fruit? Am I actively filling my mind with the truth of God's word so there is less room for worry and fear and anxiety? As I fill my mind with God's truth, there will just be less, less room for those ruminations that lead me down that path. Uh, a couple of months ago, uh, my husband and I did a parenting conference at a church, and at the end there was a, a Q&A time, and a mother asked, she has a, um, I think about a 12 or 13-year-old son who was having a very hard time sleeping. He was very frightened, very anxious. And I was trying to answer that question, but I didn't have a lot of information. But then one of the elders' wives raised her hand, and I was so glad she said to this mother, you need to figure out what he's watching, what, what games is, is he playing, because obviously that is affecting him far more than they should be. And that's a helpful reminder for all of us. Let's be very, very careful what we're putting into our minds and hearts that tempt us to be afraid. One of the passages that the Lord has used in my life in my battle with fear and anxiety is Psalm 131, 1 and 2. So please turn there as we finish. Psalm 131, 1 and 2. I love these verses. <laughs> Psalm 131. O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. I say this to myself frequently when I am tempted to be anxious about something, wanting to be in control of something, wanting to control the situation or other people or start thinking too much about what's going on in the world and what is going to happen. What about my children? What about my grandchildren? Those things that just are so tempting for us to be anxious about. We have to arrest our thoughts, not lift our hearts too high, not raise our eyes, not look at those things too much, but like a child, cultivate a rest and a quietness and a trust, a childlike trust, childlike faith in our great God. He's God. I'm not. He is in sovereign control of all things. I'm not. He is accomplishing his good and perfect purposes. I can trust him. And he is bringing us to be with him. In just a short amount of time, we will be with the Lord so let's be careful not to let the things of this earth weigh in too heavily, drag us down, make us anxious. Let us cultivate this childlike trust and faith in our great God. Please pray with me. Father God, we praise you that you are who you are. 
We praise you that you are a trustworthy, sovereign, kind, gracious, just, righteous, powerful, wise God. There is no one like you, O Lord, and we bow down and worship you. And I pray for these dear women. Lord, may all of us be inclined more and more to rest in you, to trust in you, to be childlike with you, confident in your care, your provision, your protection, your purposes, your promises, Lord. Help us arrest our thoughts when they do not line up with your word and help us replace them, quickly replace them with the truth that you have so graciously revealed to us, Lord. May we be in your word. May we be praying. May we be serving. May we be loving because of who you are, Lord. Help us be aware of what we're fearful about and where those fears just do not line up with your word. I pray that you would do all of this work in each one of us by your grace, Lord. It is in you alone that we are hoping. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.